Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 50, otherwise known as the Quarter Quell, for Tuesday, December 2nd, 2014. If you've been listening to us for a while, you know that every 50 episodes we change up the format of our show and talk about four different every movies. Every 25 episodes. Oh, sorry. Oh, yep. I know math, obviously. Uh, every 25 quarters, episodes. Quarters of 100. Yeah, Quarter Quell, a phrase that we definitely invented and did not steal from any major franchises or books. Um, we change up the format of the show. Each of us picks a movie that we want the group to discuss based around a theme that we've chosen. This time, we have decided to talk about movies that reflect how our lives have changed specifically since we started recording this podcast. Because <laughs> as uh, as Patches, in the words of Patches, this show has tracked so many major life changes over its existence. And it's really true. We've been recording since we've, we've done it for four years now, which is... What was the first... I think David, you, and I talked about... Um... Rabbit, what? Oh God, what was that Nicole Kidman movie? Rabbit hole. Rabbit hole. Fence. I remember rabbit. No, rabbit proof friends. I keep thinking rabbit. of rabbit proof fence, but it's rabbit yeah. hole. Yeah. I remember okay. the first one was being one 127 hours. That's very possible. Oh, I so thought, long ago. Yeah, I know. I, I as I We're remember, old. we started talking because we all liked a movie and David hated it, and we decided to make a podcast about it. Well, we, we set the tone. <laughs> I know. It's very much founded <laughs> comes, on that. We've come so far. Um. So anyway, we've all picked four movies. Each, each of us has watched the movies chosen by each other to uh. And we'll talk about why they reflect, you know, whatever it is about our lives that have changed since we first started recording, uh, you know, a formerly named podcast oh so for many years ago. Should I say the four movies before we start or should it be a surprise? Dave? I think that we could just keep, we could just start rolling. All right, let's, let's go. Well, I'm up first and I chose a 2014 movie, which, you know, says so much about how I've changed since uh, spring of this year, as I know you all have. Um, well, no, so it's Neighbors, which is you know, Seth Rogen and Zach Efron comedy. And I chose it because it came out, I think it came out the weekend that I got married, as many of you know, and the three of you on this phone call were there. Um, but I saw it the week after I got married, literally less than a week after. I ducked out of work early and went and saw it at the AMC in Times Square by myself because I was on my way to go meet my then husband or my now husband. He was recently my husband. Um, and friends for dinner. And I had like an hour and a half to kill and I wanted to see Neighbors. So I went to see it and I'd heard good things. I don't think I'd been paying too much attention to the reviews. And then by the end of the movie, I was surprised to find myself tearing up because I was very moved by the way that it depicted marriage, which is something that I didn't know a ton about and still don't really know a ton about. It's been like six months now. But the, I mean, the reason that this movie is good and funny is it has a lot to do with Seth Rogen and Zac Efron and kind of these silly fights between them and Dave Franco's giant penis and all these different things that it gets into. But the way that Rose Byrne is not only incorporated into the movie in a way that women don't get to be in a lot of these comedies sometimes, but the way that their relationship and their marriage forms a lot of what's going on in it, that the two of them are both involved in this prank war and that a lot of their problems with the neighbors isn't just about them being loud. It's about them wanting to to still define themselves as young and hip and able to hang with it. And the fact that it's the two of them in it together, I found really lovely. And specifically at the end, when they get in bed after, I think Seth Rogen has fought with Zac Efron inside the house, and it's the cops have come, and it's all ridiculous, and they're drunk and in bed. And one of them, and I can't remember which one of them it is, has pizza in bed. 
and they oh, both that's are Seth Rogen. Yeah, so he's he brought has pizza. pizza and ranch dipping sauce, which yeah. is a really good idea. And she is so incredibly grateful for it. And that and it, yeah, it's a great idea and it's so much exactly what not just marriage but a long-term relationship and living with somebody is about. It's that you break down these boundaries, you take care of each other in ways that seem disgusting and like something you would do for yourself but would never have another person in on it with you, but then that person is in on it with you and with that and then many other gross things that happen to them and they have a baby, which is an element of the movie I can't relate to, but assume that I will someday. Not yet. Not yet. No, yeah. no yeah. I, 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 will, I assume I will someday, but not at the moment. Um, but it captures so much just about the, those basic things about being together and being a team. And I like the idea of marriage as a team and Neighbors is one of the few recent comedies I can think of that really emphasizes that in addition to having dick jokes and Zac Efron shirtless and breast milk jokes, which was really weird. Um, so eating pizza in bed is what marriage is about, and that's why... Is that what it's been me. like for you? I mean... I mean, it's... it's because we, we this whole to... movie is about the big change, right? That they're worried maybe that they'll lose their partying edge, or that's, that's something that you should even worry about when, when you get married. And well, for people these days, and you included, you were with your boyfriend for so long that yeah. maybe the transition to marriage actually, wasn't that different. But it, It's actually, this is uh, maybe a comment best tabled for next year, but it, it seems like a much more hard-hitting, uh, even though it, it does so in a in a lighter, more openly juvenile way, version of the new Noah Baumbach film uh, while we're young. I didn't really make that connection until I was listening to Katie talk about it. But yeah, Table that thing piece. Table, that save that. Yeah, save I haven't that seen thought. while we're young, so maybe I'll feel the same way about the... I assume they also eat pizza in bed in that movie. That That's more it's, for people who are on the brink of 40 rather than who are maybe recently married in their 30s, but uh, I think the general idea is the same. Yeah, I mean, the, the stuff about like holding on to being young, I mean, I think, as it does for most people, happen more gradually. Like, you know, we were out of town for Thanksgiving and came back in town and then deliberately spent the weekend not hanging out with anybody because we wanted time to, like, decorate the house for Christmas. Like, that is a lame married person thing that didn't just happen because we got married. It's because we've been, you know, we've been together for this long and that we've gotten older together. And we met when we were 23 and are now 30. And that's such a that, that's a huge change that happens really right. gradually. And I think in a lot of movies you'll watch. Things that happen in normal life gradually happen really fast for the sake of dramatic stakes. And I don't, I don't think Neighbors is any different. It's them trying to pack up their baby and take it to the club, which is not something that would ever occur to me to do. I baby's first rave. Baby's first rave. Baby's first rave. It's hilarious. And it's so it's not something anybody would do, but it, it's like just a degree or two removed from, you know, all the Park Slope parents who bring their babies to bars. And, I mean... Feel free to strike me down if I do this, but I will probably be a Park Slope parent who brings a baby to a bar. And I'm not even going to be sad about it, so don't judge me. Um, but yeah, everyone does it. Everyone tries to hang on to who they were as an individual. And then, you know, in the case of these parents, who they were before they had kids. And it's scary, but then someone brings pizza in bed and it's less scary because you at least have someone doing it with you. Two two things. One, I feel like recently you went, maybe you went to like Michigan or something, and you were surrounded by frat kids. Yes, yes. No, did we this, went to. Did that uh, remind you of anything? We went to the University of Michigan, where Michael, my husband, went to school. He's like forty-five minutes from where his parents live, and walked around at all these frat parties. It was the first weekend of school, so like the parties were bigger than usual, and all of them had out above-ground outdoor pools, which I found really dangerous. Um, and no, that was definitely just like, oh my god, my life actually did become neighbors. What if we lived here? Holy shit, my life would be horrible. Um, so that was very, that was another like stark contrast to like, oh, here are all these kids. If it were five years ago, I'd be like, oh, we sh I feel bad about not being at these parties. 
But would you? Uh, I, I think. Well, I used to have like because major... that wasn't your college. Well, have you always? No, it was not my college experience at all. People. What's that? Have you always thought of yourself as one of those people who has always been sort of a ninety-year-old in the body of a younger person, or like as in? Because for me, being in a long-term relationship now, I feel like it. You know, for better or worse, allows me as a uh, old man <laughs> to uh, be a little bit more at peace with my old manness and not feel the need to, to try and be younger. But are you were you the same way in that you've always felt uh, like you were just waiting for your your uh, place in the culture to catch up with the age that you felt you were, or uh, are you the kind of person who was like, let's go party all the time? Well, I wouldn't. I mean, going to a frat party is something I didn't do in college. My college barely had frats. I would not have gone if they'd existed. That was not my thing at all. But I I mean, even after a couple years after I moved to New York, on Fridays and Saturday nights, I'd always be like, wait, but like everyone else is out. I should be doing something. I should be like out in the world. And I still get twinges of that, but it's, I mean, it's so much less than it used to be. Like the idea of staying in on a Friday night makes perfect sense to me now in a way that it didn't. And yet, you and your husband can often be found during the week at a bar. Raging. At a <laughs> raging. Bar, Raging. Drinking whiskey. Breaking, like, drinking whiskey, not breaking bar stools. Um, so maybe yeah. Neighbors is really on the horizon for you. You haven't hit this moment just yeah, yet. Yeah, that's true. I mean, well, although we do that a lot less than we used to. Like, the people at the bar around the corner from us, every time we go there, they're just like, where have you been? And just because we don't go <laughs> as much as we used to. Because I, I get up for work at 7 o'clock in the morning now. Like, there's there's just all those little cuts that make that happen. And that in Neighbors, I mean, it's been happening to them for a while. Like, you can tell that at the beginning of the movie, like, the idea of going to a club at all is kind of an effort, even if they didn't have a baby. Like, it definitely happens in that way, step by step. What's interesting about the movie is how adult it is and how considerate it is to all the different roles that adults can play. It's really funny. I hadn't seen it until this week, so I just oh. totally missed it when it came out in May and you know kept missing it. Should have watched it on an airplane at some point, probably. Yeah. But, uh, finally rented it this week. And I look back at you know Anne Hornaday at Washington Post uh, lambasting the movie during the um, – the shooting in California. And oh, that's right. Seth I forgot Rogen about to that. Totally the Santa Barbara that. shooting. Um, and I also think, because I think it pops up in A.O. Scott's uh, Death of Adulthood, you know, Seth Rogen mm-hmm. at all, right? Um, just that, that persona kind of all being tied to the death of adulthood. I'm like, this movie is adulthood. It's so considerate. I can't believe this movie made hundreds of millions of dollars because <laughs> it's, it's so considerate to the issues of adulthood and and taking them seriously and then flip-flopping on uh, bro-y, bro-y roles. Like, I love the conversation in this movie between Seth Rogen and, um, oh, God, what's her name? Uh, I'm Rose Byrne? Yeah, Rose, Rose Byrne, Byrne when, um, you know, Seth is like, I'm the dude. You know, I'm supposed to eat the mushrooms with the kids, and you're supposed to pull me out of these situations because you're the wife. You're supposed to have your head on straight. She's like, no, I want to get drunk, and you're supposed to. Maybe you're supposed to do that. And I just love flip-flopping it in that way it's just so considerate of all the different personas like yes young women are just the same party animals turned responsible adults as as men it's wonderful yeah and the fact that it's just a decade but like seth rogan and zach efron are actually only like seven years apart in age and it's slightly changed for the movie but there's not that much age difference between them and that makes it so clear like how not that far they are from the personas they would have had like that in college. Well, that's how we feel, right? We're not that yeah. much older than the frat kids. But, but the idea of going so to a frat party, frat like kids. you could you could not in a hundred years walk into a frat party right now. Yeah. Hey, whoa, whoa, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if they would let me in, but <laughs> 
I, I might try. David would, would turn on Showa for me. And be the hit of the part. <laughs> yeah, it would be impossible. It would be impossible for me to do the full Tom Cruise, uh, Last Samurai, become one with the with the indigenous people sort of thing. <laughs> I would always be on the outside, uh, being like, "What is this world?" Yeah, and I don't think I would have been that way even five years ago. And I mean, yeah, it's it's something that you don't. Five years doesn't feel like as long a time when you're not in college and you're living in the same place and you're with the same person. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, I got older in this time. And it's But have not- you had that moment where you're like nostalgic for it at all? For or like was, for there was college no, or for like. There was no tipping point. For college? For the partying or for like- element. Oh. I think. I mean, I don't real, think like. like well, I mean, like, well now, it's, the wind. well, now it's like going to weddings and stuff like that, which are also really fun and in a different way. And and again, like I, frat parties were not part of my college experience, so I would not have done stuff that similar to that. But I definitely have like, I don't know, like when it was when, like a Friday night meant like getting together friends who lived really near me and like going out somewhere and like we just like go right. through the effort and we'd go out. And I've, I have done that. I mean, I don't think I'd want to do that, but it wouldn't happen anymore. And there's some nostalgia for it, but not that. I would try and I mean you can't recapture something like that. Like it existed in a time and place and you don't do it again, which I think is kind of what they And it's so neighbors. weird that there's no tipping point either. Like not too long ago there was a time in my life where yeah, Friday or Saturday I'd go to a bar and like get drunk with friends. That would be the goal. Go out and get drunk and just throw caution to the wind. Um and now I would I only accidentally get drunk. Oh really? I would never purposefully, I would never go out and like get hammered unless oh, being drunk well, becomes increasingly unpleasant. I feel. Yes, uh, that's and I say so that now true. at thirty, and I'm sure I, when I'm forty, I'll be like, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't remember when I didn't see it, like when it all started going wrong for me. When partying did not become, it became such a chore because of the effect it had on your body. And they, you kind of see it in this movie. I love all the sex scenes in Neighbors where they're just like. <laughs> they, Seth Rogen can't get up because he's too drunk. You're like, that's how adults do it. <laughs> like, yep, yep, yep. This is the sad truth. <laughs> Although now I'm telling you, because of weddings, like you're at these open bar situations, it just becomes that much easier to get drunk and then torture yourself. It really is. A, they, they're trying to make it you're more grown up, but weddings make it so much harder. Okay. All oh, right then. <laughs> Weddings make it so much harder is not the theme I wanted to. You can still get one more comment here. There's a moment uh, you could. Well, Dave hasn't. I haven't heard from Dave yet. Oh, uh, this is also my first time seeing Neighbors. Uh, it was interesting in the sense that uh, I guess every character got a part to grow up, but Zac Efron was so wholly the villain. It reminded me of when everybody was trying to cast Zac Efron and things after this movie came out. And I was like, that can't be right. I mean, I know he's good, but he can't be that good. And then I saw the movie, I'm like, oh, hey, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but in terms of in terms of growing older, uh, I, 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 I could hang at the frat parties still. It's Ooh. just you got you to gotta, you gotta be willing to take that punishment. And uh, that's why I would say don't have kids because you could... <laughs> At this point, you could take that punishment and uh, not be responsible for another life. Every time I'm hungover now, I think about how horrible it must be to be a parent and be hungover. You think about the children. I think about the children <laughs> who I will uh, ignore while having a hangover someday. I went through it. Everyone will go through it. Wait, you went through being ignored as a child as a when child? your parents oh, had yeah. a hangover? Oh, well, what? my mom. I'm, no, not like ignored, but like go eat your cereal and watch television. I'm going to go lie down for another 10 minutes. I don't think your I've ever seen my parents. No, I don't think I've ever seen my parents have a hangover, especially well, I, don't, I don't have memories of that as a kid. 
I don't Mommy remember. Mommy never had a headache? Wait, wait, she isn't your well. dad like a sommelier or something? Yeah. He's never had a hangover? <laughs> no, they probably did. I just didn't notice. No, they I don't remember crack. it either. My mom my like my mom will talk about it now. But I don't remember uh, any of this from when I was a kid. I don't think memories. I don't think you're able, like you're too self centered as a kid to notice these things. Hey. So everyone be hung over with your children. <laughs> Ignore them, they'll turn out fine. And uh see neighbors and become a grown up. And go Zach Efron casting things. Those are all coherent messages. Yeah. Mississippi putting it down. I'm the hottest round. I told your mother. For this quarter quill, I am bro- I have brought Raiders of the Lost Ark for a series of different reasons. Uh, I Mostly guess... the adventures you've been having in the yeah. Uh, the I, I, I watched this That's thinking entirely about what Dave's life has been like since he left <laughs> New York. He's been fighting Nazis and stealing <laughs> treasures that belong in a museum. Yeah, sort of. There's one thing that's going to overlap that I think makes this all make sense. But here's the narrative for those of you that uh, maybe are just tuning into spotty episodes of Fighting in the War Room or just the review episodes, which I'm not on, which uh, who would blame you? They're excellent. Um, I relocated from New York to Denver, Colorado this year um, after living in New York for about 10 years. Uh, That's where I learned to like live on my own and be responsible and have jobs and friends and party uh, as I'm now reminiscing about thanks to Katie's segment um, mm. but then I came to Denver I grew up sort of in Colorado went to high school here but uh, came back I haven't seen the city since it sort of developed into like a real city and I came here and I was living with my parents for a while and then sort of had to leave that situation and was leaving living with my friend in his basement for a while and then finally found an apartment and like moved in here and I'm just now getting settled and I wanted to bring up Raiders of the Lost Ark also in conjunction with my dad um, likes Big Bang Theory, which I might have brought up on the podcast in previous moments. And he um, showed me a clip while I was there uh, where one of the characters is talking to Sheldon and discourages him from liking Raiders in the Lost Ark because he says if Indiana Jones didn't do anything in that movie, the outcome would be the exact same. So essentially the hero does nothing throughout the entire film. Uh they would find Marion and find the full uh, medallion, so they would cut the rod at the correct height and get the arc somewhere where they would open it and it would all melt and whatnot. Basically, Indiana Jones is uh, <laughs> pointless in his own adventure, which is basically true outside of the fact that he sort of saves Marion from being tortured or captured by Nazis. But uh, for the most part, he's just a guy who's going about from goal to goal and dealing with these adventures. And when you're moving, uh, you sort of feel like you're having these momentous adventures where you're spending lots of money on stupid services and moving supplies. Or all of a sudden, you're you're like taking a shower in a new place and realize you didn't pack your towel from the last place. And all these <laughs> things feel momentous. But as part of like moving an entire life that you had... Uh, rooted down in one place for 10 years you sort of slowly start uh, becoming peripheral to certain things uh, social things and groups or just like activities in both cities so you kind of have to fade down I had to like kind of fade down on New York and I've just started like fading up on Denver and what I've realized is that I've been going through all these adventures that like every day I'd tell you of some weird crazy trial where I'd maybe learn something about myself or about my friends or about life in general uh, because I'm going through like these high stress uh, relocations. But I have 
very little effect on the overall narrative of my own life or really anybody's life with these little adventures. And thus, I think it's a great to highlight uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark as like the greatest MacGuffin movie that like keeps you entertained moment to moment, but ultimately is just sort of like God laughs at those who make plans. But you're you're doing yourself a disservice, just like this read of Raiders is doing a disservice to the movie. I mean, the hero character is is what's driving us through this adventure, and he does save Marion, and he does. I mean, he's our host. Yeah, he's bringing I mean, he's us the, into the fold in each. He's scene. our tour guide. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it definitely, if it's a movie about a character, which because I guess Indiana Jones and getting added to the series in the George Lucas-like retcon of his entire grouping sort of makes it about the character. But Raiders, just as an adventure serial movie, I think it's sort of beautiful the way it's almost uh, about no real thing being at stakes for its hero and heroine outside of each other. Hmm. You don't like think the world. Any, you don't think there's any state. You mean that they're not saving the world by getting this artifact? Is that what you mean? That they're not they're not really saving anyone. They only have their own goal, and they're setting off to do it. And if he gets the the ark, then he wins. But if he doesn't, then nothing is really lost. Well, except for the well, fact that if the Nazis could somehow control it, we'd all be dead. In terms but of the, the movie, ark it's was like if he survived. Right, right. In terms of the movie, it's like if he survives, if he wins. It's like it's a microcosm of the first scene where we see him go all through all this effort to get the idol and get betrayed and he goes through a whole little hero's journey in the beginning of the movie only to have the idol taken away from him and he gets away with his life but that is what we have to accept Hmm. is uh, a win in this situation I've never really considered the existential uh, ramifications of his journey but I mean (laughs) he is making an impact even a small one he's saving Marion's life or he's getting this artifact and bringing it out of you know in that first scene he's retrieving the idol he gets it out right so it's out of this awful place. I mean, it's been out of his, control. But for all his treasure hunting, does he ever return home with anything that he can hang on to uh, more valuable than his life or the life of somebody else? Because even the story, when story—that's what it's about. Well, it's about yeah, saving even when people. he has the treasure, it goes to the massive, uh, goes to the museum. you know, Area Fifty One right. library. Yeah, I think the closest thing is the cross that's from the beginning of the the third film. But that's also there's a whole bunch of the third film's attempt to reach back and plant story to make this whole Indiana Jones and his father relationship seem like it's been going on for a long time. And like they have the origin of the scar on his face and his fear of snakes all in that sequence that, you know, really sort of makes it this weird character piece that I feel like Raiders and uh, Temple of Doom sort of aren't. Uh, those are both. Uh, interesting pieces about where sort of it, it adventure meets futility and when you decide as a human what's important to you. It's in Temple of Doom, at least, the whole idea that he's going to go back and save the kids just for some sort of moral imperative and, you know, return the uh, stones rather than, like, take them back to the museum is supposed to be this turning point that we see in the prequel. So, Indy's already learned that by the time Raiders comes along. So all he's really trying to do is, you know, I guess keep Marion safe and not have the Ark fall Just into the wrong Marian hands. Just keep Marion safe. He and, loves Marion. And he's yeah. protecting... That's a great well, that's thing a to do. Deal. And At he's, like, protecting the idea a... of, like, things belonging in a museum, which matters a lot to him. Like, that 
I mean, my brother's an archaeologist, and I always kind of feel like this fist bump for archaeology when he says that kind of thing. Because, like, it does matter. Like, having that stuff in the right hands is important, even if it was going to melt them and it wasn't going to empower Hitler. Like, having something where it belongs is a worthwhile endeavor. Yes, but that's also retconned in the third movie, and so therefore I don't think it's necessarily <laughs> a solid line to attribute to Indiana Jones all the all way through. Right. The it belongs in it museum. Well, but is... he in the in the in this one he's just like, and then when we get it, we're gonna send it to the museum, right? Like he's very like emphatic well, about that when he's first getting the assignment. My my Dave is uh, more than any of us, or almost more than anybody I know, very attached to or interested in, I should say, uh, story and the, and the shape that story takes and and his own I think... story. He's a right. Well, I, part of the thing that's interesting <laughs> about uh, him choosing Indiana Jones is that. He he seems to have had this maybe recent awakening that it the movie fulfills all of the hero's journey stuff even in the first five minutes and then the the hits the beats that he'd expected to hit but that they may sort of be inconsequential and maybe having a tough time wrapping his head around how he's able to love them without you know needing to reconcile the two. But I'm oh. guessing like do you apply this to where you are in your life right now? Talking about couch surfing and living in your parents' house for a little while there and re- like trying to reconcile your happiness with the fact that and this is obviously I'm making a big reach here, but like trying to <laughs> trying to reconcile on. your happiness with the fact that your life is not uh, exactly where you thought it would be. I mean, it's more, I've been planning this. I've had my narrative of moving in my head for a long time and now the future's uncertain. So it's more like I'm unsure how to, couch my own life within the narrative and so i guess what you're suggesting and which might be true is that i'm finding some sort of comfort in a valid non-narrative that's still hitting the beats that that's all that that is you to a t though you are a storyteller (laughs) you love sticking your nose in in trouble to see what kind of crazy story you'll get out of it and that's the joy of raiders of the lost ark right all these scenes in this movie are perfect uh it doesn't matter what the overarching narrative really is. We kind of forget it. It falls in the background. And as you say, it doesn't really matter that Indiana Jones is part of this. It all ends one way or the other with Nazis getting their face melted off. But these moments are so... Isn't that true of everything? Yes, it always ends with Nazis melting. Um, These moments are so worthy of noting though right you want to go back and you want to talk about the 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 drinking the marion drinking scene or, or just all these fights uh these nasty places that indiana jones gets caught in these situations and i feel like that's you to a t dave you 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 go out and you embark in the unknown and for some reason one one way or another you're coming out of it with a story and that's kind of what you get off on let's be honest I'm psychoanalyzing no, that's, you here, but that's, yeah. that's definitely true. I did, there was definitely a part, a time in my life that I had to tell myself I was not going to do things just for the excuse that I could write about it later. Because <laughs> I'd be like, "Well, here I am vomiting in the morning again. What did I do last night? And why did I think I wanted to blog about it?" But <laughs> you're, definitely, you are the live journal generation. You're like the Zanga generation. I don't know if you had you had either of those, but you seem to me like someone who. You you can tell you you are automatically a memoirist in some ways, and Indiana Jones is too. Even though we have a kind of third party telling his stories, they're not really that important, but we love the moments. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting as somebody who thinks that there's like story in all things. That this is probably my favorite movie where I don't think like the overall story is something that I would describe to you. Maybe even in my, I don't know. 
my it's maybe my 12th or 13th favorite thing about the movie like i don't know how long i'd be talking to you about raiders of the lost ark if you'd never seen it before i was like well then you know he has to find this staff that's with his old research buddy thing because the nazis are after the ark it's just yeah. like everything you would describe is another uh good example of a cinematic uh technique or a good performance and it's they cobble together to make a movie and for somebody that usually falls for like really complex narratives or interconnected uh story threads that make me freak out uh Raiders is definitely the simplest movie that I enjoy uh regularly and so I guess I now have to think about my life that way is just enjoy <laughs> the regular the simple the simple little adventures yeah i mean do you feel like it kind of tells you that like there doesn't have to be an overarching narrative to what happens to you or you know maybe it's going to be there but only retconned in the third movie and you're not going to be able to know about it until seven years that's awesome that's actually almost exactly what's going to happen to me (laughs) so in two more quarter quills maybe i'll do a last crusade and be like well here's what really happened to me 50 episodes ago here's what it meant to you in your relationship with your father yeah oh yeah maybe (laughs) that'll be heating up by then I have a question for you that's also specific about this. Like, when you're saying you've been telling the story of yourself in this move for a long time, like, were you telling yourself a specific story about, like, what it meant and what kind of person you would be? And, like, and then did you see that challenge in a really specific way? Or was it just you kind of psyching yourself up to do it and then seeing how it turned out and not really knowing exactly what to expect from it? Um, it's, it's more the, to battle my, I battle anxiety with planning. Uh, Mm -hmm. so, I had just helpful a whole when bunch moving. You need to yes, just helpful when moving. So uh, I had a whole bunch of different ways things would play out, and then you know, occasionally things wouldn't. Like UPS, uh, I've learned, and hey, everybody, listen to this: if you schedule a pickup with UPS and uh, the driver says that you aren't there, he doesn't have to call you; he just leaves, and then you have to pay for it. So something like that happened, and then I was, like, loading boxes in a taxi to, like, get to Park Slope where there was a UPS drop-off, but I only had, like, two hours. So I'm running around doing this thing, but I'm actually kind of calm because it's, like, as long as I can get the boxes to the store, like, that is, a like, its own little mini-adventure and mini-success. So in that way, I'm, like, Indiana Jones from the opening. <laughs> like, I may not get the artifact, but if I survive... That's that's the key. I hope when you're like driving to FedEx to get the boxes, you're listening to John Williams rousing yeah. Raider score. That you're at least living as an adventure. You put on your fedora. You should do that. Maybe, maybe you have maybe you have your shirt. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull moment where you pick it up off the floor and you're imagining the pan up to you and you're like, yeah, I'm the boss. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the you mentioned the fourth movie. Oh yeah, I went there. Had we to. almost got through the whole segment Could without not do mentioning that, that Could movie. Not. Are you going to start defending King of the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull now? No, and that's no, my I, job. Yeah, I was worried about Pat just doing it. That's but all David too. I can't do that. So for my movie, I am uh, naturally going highbrow, as I tend to do, and picking a film by a uh, unfortunately deceased auteur named Gary Winnick called 13 Going on 30, uh, which came out in 2004. And uh, I was under the impression that 
most people, most millennials, whatever that is, uh, had memorized this movie. But it turns out some of my cohorts here had yeah, not seen it. Yeah, it's no Mean Girls, it. apparently. Maybe uh, that's a problem. It got overshadowed mean by Mean Girls. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this, you know, choosing it for this quarter quill stems from uh, an observation that it actually, I don't know how far back it goes. Uh, it, when I was turning 30 in October, it was sort of the natural touchstone. Uh, and I, I, like a year ago, I scheduled a tweet for my 30th <laughs> birthday at midnight that I almost completely forgot about. And uh, after midnight on, uh, on my birthday, I started getting tweets back and I had no idea what they were in reference to. And not just because I was on my way to being blackout drunk, but I had tweeted 30, flirty and thriving, which is uh, <laughs> the name of an article in this film that inspires young Jenna Rink to want to be 30. This must be the only film uh, ever made where a character says and, and genuinely believes i, I, I want 30. to be 30 yeah. i mean i guess big to some extent and we'll talk about big but she literally says that exact line in this movie um and and someone unbeknownst to me had made little crowns that said because i must have said this out loud to my friends this quoted this movie because somebody made a crown for me to wear at my birthday party that said 30 flirty and thriving uh elisa my lovely girlfriend who just walked out of the bedroom to give herself credit uh, gave maybe that crown and uh um yeah so that i mean it was, it was so it is a movie that i've seen a thousand times i saw it the weekend it opened because that's just what i did with my life uh, and i always thought it was it was sweet as far as it goes but and then uh, i sort of made a flippant observation when i started working at timeout that i was like oh i'm 30 years old i feel like i'm 13 i work at a magazine i live in new york city uh jenna rink in the film is dating her 30 year old self is dating uh a ranger player a player of the rangers and you um, are too and i I I would love to be you know I would uh, I would at least like to to be their friend if not their boyfriend. <laughs> if this movie was written by Amy Sherman Palladino, you would have melted in two thousand four and never exactly. returned. This was this is uh, yeah. Movie. So I mean, I, there are a lot of similarities. Jenna works at a fashion magazine, like a cosmopolitan type magazine, uh, with Judy Judy Poise. Greer, who is my best friend in real life. So mm-hmm. the similarities continue. Yeah. Um, and uh, I work at a, a Time Out, which is I guess there are fashion segments. Um, but <laughs> anyway, so there, there were <laughs> know your brand. comparisons, but as I was rewatching the movie, I, you know, I think that they're really, it's a very broad comedy, of course, and it's, you don't really have to go too far out of my way to see the touchstones here about, uh, somebody who wakes up one day. I mean, she wishes that she were an adult and realizes it's, it's a lot, not unlike big about the difference between being a child and adult and the different responsibilities and one being preferable to the other. And I take huge exception with big which i uh, i think 30 13 going on 30 is better than uh that um big at the end of big he's pretty much like oh i don't want to be an adult i miss being a kid and they never have that moment in 13 going on 30 which is so great she never thinks i miss being a kid i want to be a kid again she's not like if if See, big to me is all of those movie nerds who are like, oh, the Star Wars trailer made me feel like I was 10 again. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. And for me, I don't want to be 10 again. Being 10 was probably fun, but... It's not, th- it's not that they want to be 10. It's that they, they needed to grow <laughs> up. They needed that process of growing up. It's but, not, you know, I, I it's would like, oh, with that it, assertion, it, but I would agree that, that, that 13 going on 30 doesn't right. have a moment but it's, where it's, it's really like, yeah, It's not back. like, oh, I, I, it makes me feel like a kid again. I want to be a kid again. It's about bringing... Uh, and, you know, and you could you could say that the way that the movie asserts bringing childhood into adulthood and merging the two is exactly what those fandoms are doing, and that's fine. I didn't mean to pick a fight with those fandoms here, um, but or at least that that expression of fandom. 
but uh, I do think that it, for me, the movie registers more at that moment of just sort of waking up and being 30 and looking around and having that talking heads moment where you're just like, how did I get here? Uh, and, and I think that the movie more than anything is sort of more than it, it's <laughs> discussions about youth versus adulthood is sort of about finding a way to live with the person that you were, that got you where you are mm-hmm. and recognizing that, um, you can't go back. Although in 13 going on 30, of course she, she does, but she does it only to, uh, and the movie glosses over the ripples in space time at the end there, yeah. uh, only to, uh, be with Mark Ruffalo. Uh, and have what uh, i what i would consider a very unhealthy relationship entirely dependent on their 13 year old selves where they're like eating right candy i feel like that's not a great way to live your life but yeah she's still kind of acting like a child even though she's technically grown up she now lives in a pink house and the movie movie. you know the movie tries to scary too and uh it it tries and is not entirely successful at because it's trying to do so many things it can't have a full-on rom-com between them where they fall in love as adults believably yeah so it just sort of trusts you to be like okay they They do fall on top of each other Um, like after but i love that like she was a like you realize when she turns when she comes into her adult self that she was actually a terrible person uh in the time that we don't see and she wakes up one day and everyone's afraid of her but she's she's nice and uh um, and she just tries to do the best with her present circumstances and, and appreciate what she has and, and uh, deal with what she doesn't. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm a kid. I feel like a lot of 30-year-olds, especially in this day and age, uh, when we don't – I mean, I know a lot of people who have kids now of their own, but people like me um, are a lot more common where, where uh, I'm just turned 30. I'm, I still feel like a kid. I, uh, I live with my girlfriend, but I'm not married. I don't have kids. Um, and I just, it's just that feeling that ineffable feeling of not being comfortable with my adulthood yet. I haven't gone to war. Uh, although 18 year olds these days still go to war, but you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And, uh, and I think the movie, balances those things very well and it's hard despite the fact that i'm a uh you know heterosexual man to see myself in this in this character uh a lot more than i do in the character that tom hanks plays in big but do do you have this moment like you obsessed over turning 30 i mean like every Every day, Leo. there was Turn there was that is not true. Even when other people on this podcast turned thirty before joking? you, you couldn't stop talking about turning thirty <laughs> in front of certain people. I know it was all about you turning thirty. You were really anxious over it. I wonder why you were so like worried about turning thirty because this is not. I mean, thirteen going on thirty isn't really about the big three zero in any way. It's more about like tracing back the mistakes that you made. I mean, she's the problems that she has in life are all derived from the choices she made as a 13 year old do you have that moment as like leading up to your 30s where it's more about like thinking of yourself as at 13 no uh what's the anxiety i don't really think about my my childhood i think everybody questions the i I think what one of the things the movie gets right which uh it doesn't really focus on and other movies probably explore in in much more uh, resonant ways is is um just the the decisions that you make that shape your whole life and and just reckoning with them like i'm happy with a lot of the decisions that i've made in my life uh and less happy i guess with others but it's not i don't even think about them because uh you know i've been so on this 
on this path. I, I was at home over the Thanksgiving weekend. I hope this in some way answers your question, Matt. But I was at home uh, over Thanksgiving, and I was looking through my old yearbooks. And uh, one of the things I saw outside of a few uh, amusing comments that I posted on Twitter was that in ninth grade, and I think I, I had known this and just recently forgotten it, I was voted most likely to be a film critic. <laughs> so that's Did they that, make up that superlative for you? Is that like something that someone yeah, got every up, year? They made up, every <laughs> single every year yearbook in, in the country as uh, most likely to be a film critic. It's a classic <laughs> staple. No, they were all, it was a school of 42 kids in our oh, graduating okay. ninth grade class. And so everybody had their own superlative. But uh, um, that should let you know, uh, you know, the, how cast in stone some of these decisions were and uh things i i couldn't change and i just think it's uh th that idea of of waking up into your life every day and having the opportunity to to change it and which i don't <laughs> but um i i i just think that that idea of that like it, there isn't a traumatic moment in my when i was 13 but collapsing all the time between as quickly as this movie does um, and trying to look backwards and figure out how I got here is definitely a daily uh, process. But does it matter? Like, do you take those observations about how you got here, how you acted as a child, how you functioned, how you made decisions, and try to incorporate them into, like, to destroy cynicism with the innocence of childhood? <laughs> That's kind of what 13 right. going on 30 is. A, like, she saves magazines, or in theory, <laughs> she would have saved her magazine if her bitchy friend hadn't well, stolen all her ideas. But, on like, one hand, I mean, the message there is that this this world, this media landscape needs innocence it needs when is david going to save print journalism yeah. right. that's well, the that's, question I mean, yeah with child on, on like the, david's uh, instincts on the one hand it is very it's bizarre that uh i you know i i do all of my film criticism these days for magazines uh magazines that have websites but it, it does feel sort of uh you know trying to hold on to something for sure and i realized while you were saying that that uh some of my closest friends now are the same friends that i had when i was 13 um, and I don't think that they actively tried to destroy me like Judy Greer did. But Judy Greer was in that movie, uh, even though she wasn't the nicest person, getting revenge on the years of evil that Jenna Rink had done to her before she had reawakened. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, me, I think anyone listening to this podcast or even reading the reviews that this podcast gets would not peg me as the person who is, is saying death to cynicism and... And bringing hope and cheer. Well, you also don't have a really strong connection to your youth based on past yeah. quarter quells. Um, but, that, but again, like that's the, the bookend stuff in this movie. Like for me, this movie really – you can pick and choose uh, with a movie like this what you take out of it. And for me, the movie really begins uh, and ends with the stuff in the modern world. Um, I don't have any – the period stuff is fun, particularly when seeing Andy Serkis lead thriller. Great. Uh, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't resonate with me quite in the same way, but I think that it's also, you know, I, I, I rag on a lot of mainstream movies on this podcast and, uh, I think it, this is one of those areas or one of those examples, at least where something works because it's so confectionary where something it, it's light, it follows the usual mold. Um, it adheres to a number of familiar tropes, and I think that the familiarity of it all uh, actually 
makes it resonate in a way that that it might not if this were like a smaller like a Sundance film that took a lot more chances and you know it helps that Jennifer Garner is great in the main role but uh I agree that she's yeah I, I think I support I support yeah. whatever Oscar campaign you want to run for her 10 years too late <laughs> I didn't really understand her co- the costumes in this well movie. it was high fashion I was as laugh of at them. 2004 which is now along yeah I mean I think so <laughs> I think it was supposed to be like yeah, well, weird but, but like, also like something girl... that fashionable would be it's a weird of like of like a right. geeky girl who is mocked by the popular girls at school, waking up and being a hot thirty year old who has this endless budget for fashion because she works in the fashion world, and just like what would those two things? Because she's not going to just adhere to the mores of uh, what's hot in modern fashion. Uh, she's going to take advantage of the new body that she has, bring to it her childhood imagination, and uh, and there's this whole thing in the movie about how she is, and they sort of extrapolate from the the youth thing all these other sort of personality things that you're just like, oh, okay, maybe it's just because she's a kid. But she, her whole thing is that like she doesn't uh, subscribe to anything that's happening now because she's unfamiliar with it. She's just sort of her own person. Uh, and and uh, I don't think that I'm that much of a, a rebel or I'm that courageous, uh, maybe when it comes to opinions about movies, but that's about it. Um, but I do think that it's one of the things about turning 30 uh, or just growing up in general, it doesn't have to be a particular age, is realizing that, and this actually ties into me not going out so much, so what we were talking about on Neighbors and <laughs> stuff, um, is that like, you don't have to do anything. Like You don't have, other than the obvious, you don't have to do certain things. You can make your own uh, standards and you know i go out once a weekend rather than twice and i feel okay about that and like you know you don't have to you don't feel <laughs> pressured in the same way that you did when you were younger i think it's very liberating um and i remember what what uh, uh what's his face matthew fox said at my college graduation matthew <laughs> fox spoke at your yeah, college graduation? graduation speaker yeah he said he david said, beware the island yeah he said you can never go back <laughs> and then he said we have to go back and uh and we did no he said um he said graduating from college means never having to say you're sorry and i think people should still apologize sometimes and i certainly didn't feel that way at 22 but i do feel like there are a lot of things about yourself that you don't have to apologize for uh as long as they don't harm other people, of course, as you grow older. Um, and uh, I think, I don't know, if there was a movie to be made out of that Matthew Fox speech, 13 Going on 30 could be it. Well, that's the thing that 13 Going on 30 gets kind of backwards <laughs> for me, I think. Like, if, if I acted more like I did as a 13-year-old, everything about my life would be worse. Like, there's nothing that would be improved by me acting like my 13-year-old self. But I And I think that the learning how to act like yourself is something that, like, she brings as a 13-year-old in this adult world. But I think that's something that you learn as an actual grown-up. Like, you figure that out in your own time. Um, but, it, you know, the, the end result is kind of the same, that you, like, kind of learn how to exist in the world with a spirit that is almost like what you wish you could tell your 13-year-old self now. Like, I think I think a lot... What would you be what would you oh, be doing? Oh, I'd just doing be terribly insecure and like it? wanting to like be in the middle of everyone's business and like trying to and like feeling left out all the time and feeling like writing like really emotional journal entries like nothing would get accomplished <laughs> if it was my 13-year-old self running the world. Big diary writer. Oh yeah. I see. Oh yeah, I, I had a Zanga Handelive journal, but not when I was 13. Um <laughs> no, I think memoirs it, are going to be great. <laughs> I yeah, Indiana Jane I think over everything here. in the world would be worse if it was run by 13-year-olds. But I think the whole the joy of watching something like 13 year on 30, 13 going on 30 is you look back and you're like, "All right, what would my 13-year-old self say if she could see me right now?" And 
I think about that a lot because I don't like I think in a lot of ways like David like I have this objective sense like I'm in New York I work at a magazine for the website but you know for a magazine but I don't know if my 13 year old self would be excited about it or not I can't remember well enough and that clarity that this movie has where she gets she knows her young self and she has her adult self I kind of envy that like I wish I could glide that seamlessly between eras and remember understanding myself at 13 which I don't feel like I do anymore interesting god 13 year old me I don't I don't know what judgments would be passed I was drinking so much Mountain Dew and playing so much Magic the Gathering I wouldn't I I had no yeah, sense. so much has changed. <laughs> yeah, so much has changed. <laughs> Wait, do any of you think so your different. lives would be better if your thirteen-year-old self was in charge? I'm. There's not God. that much different outside of <laughs> if the, basically. If the internet would have been at its height that it is now when I was thirteen, then my life would be fairly similar. If I could open the files on this zip disk, I would be able to tell you. <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> I think being a 13-year-old boy is easier than being a 13-year-old girl. Is it? It was pretty cruel being, like, a a 13-year-old boy into choir and theater in middle school. I don't know. I just... Everyone... It wasn't cruel for me. It was just... uh, You know, I feel... Not... You know, sometimes I feel this way now. That that no one went out of their way to be mean to me. I just... um, No one ever gave me anything because like there was never any advantage to, to being like a, a regular 13 year old boy you know there was uh it was it was you were lucky you only had 42 right. yeah. well, no, that was when i went to cool. sophomore year of high school my school was 2500 people in four grades it was huge. oh god um but yeah i mean it's just i felt you know I'm not, I'm not talking about like white privilege and all that shit i just mean i just mean like as a 13 year old boy versus being a 13 year old girl um i felt like i never had an, enough attention to turn it into something negative. Um, oh, see, I felt like everyone was paying attention to me, even if they weren't, and then they were judging me and hating me. That I think. Well, that's, that's another. A, thing I think that's a pretty worried. common teenager feeling. Oh yeah, no. When you get walk into a room, of course, I think. It's oh com- yeah, like anything bad that happens to that you, is everyone a is judging you. Yeah, everyone's watching well, you I was and a, thinks uh, you're stupid. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was a narcissist, so I was like, I hope everyone's <laughs> watching me. <laughs> This game was completely different, but that I, I mean, it doesn't make it any less of a horrible age because you just you feel awkward everywhere. That being said, my sensibilities in like I don't know, my sensibilities in art and the world around me have become more informed, but have they become more refined? I don't know. I don't know. I I couldn't save print journalism any better being 30 than I could when I was 13 that's for sure you just finished reading all of the goosebumps books I haven't I haven't finished yet but yes you're correct I'm sorry times change so for the next quarter we'll all be getting out our 13 year old diaries and uh, sharing what we've learned oh my god (laughs) poetry set to music (laughs) oh god Um, the preface for this segment is that I told my girlfriend that I was going to talk about Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York, and she told me that that was a very depressing movie, <laughs> and that what was wrong? I could have told you that. Like why? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that I should, like life is going very well for me. I'm very happy with most things in my life, um, and conf- but I the way I, but. I 
approach a depressing yeah, the way I approach a depressing movie like Synecdoche, New York, if you think it's depressing, is that these these movies that confront sadness and and the end of times. This movie is very much about death and and life's journey and how it comes to an end. Um, for me, it's all about confronting and grappling with those topics to ultimately come out of them being more optimistic and really hopeful about uh, life. And I think that's what, what if I was going to try and relate something to what's been going on in my life right now. It's very much about considering mortality, a topic that I don't, I, I really had to think about movies that I wanted to talk about in this kind of headspace because uh, I was floating around Akiru with you guys and then this film. Um, and Akira was more about like, oh, you're about to die of, of cancer. Um, like, just say goodbye to everything. And that's not that's really... That's more about the lasting that. value of your actions and the, the sum total of human existence, I think. But the, but are there... I, I, I couldn't think of movies that are about just like considering mortality without a real I think Well, uh, I, I think you were originally going to choose Still Alice, which we'll talk about on the show down the line. True. And I think without... Uh, even though that movie has a strong prompt... I think that you actually ended up picking a movie that tackles very similar subject matter. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think when I saw this movie when it first came out in 2008, that I was very attracted to the second half of it when Philip Seymour Hoffman's theater director character, Caden Cotard, uh, embarks on this crazy theater project to kind of recreate his life and find the most honest piece of theater that he's ever uh you know, tried to whip up uh, and by building his life inside of this, basically like a, an airplane. I think it's the Park Slope Armory. I guess it? It, the, the is yeah. it well, yeah. the real estate agent that sells Here's them the my, property. My rare brag. Oh, I don't know if I may brag a lot. I don't know. My rare set brag because <laughs> I never go to sets. Is that I, really? because I knew someone who knew someone who knew someone. I actually spent a day on the set while they were shooting all the elevator stuff, and it was. Was it in the It was the in the armory. armory. It was fucking yeah. insane. They converted yeah, they the entire armory into like money. a fun. It looked like the whole thing. Like the elevator thing was just like on a ramp and it was tiny in the corner. But um, otherwise, like the whole set that they show that was all built. It was incredible and a tragedy. They the real estate that. agent in the movie is just like, oh, they did plays here. <laughs> and <laughs> and Phillips were always just like, wait, what? And no, no they did plays here. Uh, okay. Um, so that's what I really gravitated towards the first time I saw this film. The second time I saw this film, um, and I picked it, you know, I didn't rewatch it before picking it for the quarter quell. But the second time I was really kind of concentrated on the first half, which is very much about like suffering from medical illness uh, or like go this kind of ongoing amorphous experience of just going to doctors all the time and how that kind of entangles with uh, mortality. So just the, the preface to all this and why I would be bringing this up and why I've been kind of thinking so much about death <laughs> um, and, and not like a, a, a sick way, but um, two things. One, I may have actually talked about on the podcast before uh two years ago at sundance i was standing in line for kill your darlings with daniel radcliffe uh you were standing no i I was at no i I was was in line at that sundance but i was not in that tent okay so i'm standing in line for this movie and at sundance you're you're in a big tent and there's metal bars kind of forming the line it's packed because this is the premiere for kill your darlings um and this is just a few short weeks after the newtown shootings and i i don't know that 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 whole event and everything that was going on in the country has kind of unnerved me and for good reason. And we're standing in this tent and all of a sudden we start hearing, and you can imagine 
that everyone would be freaking the fuck out because someone is shooting into this tent. Um, I mean, the chaos is undescribable. Everyone's screaming. Everyone's pushing over these metal gates that are keeping people in line. The tent is coming down, like being ripped through. People are running. I, I ran. I just ran. Uh, and I ran behind a car because I didn't know what was going on. And what turned out to happen was that a, a fire extinguisher exploded. And it just made a popping sound that sounded a lot like a gun. But everyone's just on edge, you know? Um, so I had a near-death experience that was not even close to a near-death experience. It just felt like one. And it really kind of screwed me up. And, you know, I probably should be in therapy, but that's why I have a podcast. <laughs> you know, I can talk about it. What are you, Mark um, So, yeah, exactly. You guys. Uh, so, so this has been lingering on. You know, I, I will be in situations where I just start thinking about, like, you know, someone could come in and, and just shoot you right now and this actually happens in synecdoche new york um multiple times i believe his his um uh, father or mother his mother his mother, his mother is, a is just yeah. attacked and killed yeah and, and and then the scene is all bloody and disgusting it's just like someone else is dead now uh someone and and so these incidents happen in the film it's quite disturbing and and they happen in life and these this moment in my life definitely lingered on uh and until and this summer i ended up having a moment um, where I was just experiencing like weird pain. I just, I felt like I was getting older and I was having this impossible to describe pain in my body that I am like, I have to go to a doctor. And I started seeing doctors and no one could figure out what this pain really was all about. And I saw many doctors. I was, I went to like a nephrologist and a urologist and a blah, blah, blah. And I'm like get being passed to different doctors for this ailment that no one can really put their finger on. And I'm like, well, the pain's not extreme. It's just like all over my body. It's sporadic and it's moving around. And I'm like, this is the oldest thing that I've ever experienced. Like I am getting older because I'm just having pain <laughs> in the most general <laughs> way. That just feels like my first thought is like, oh, you have cancer. You should probably go to a doctor immediately. Something indescribable is happening to you. This is not like go get your shot or go get this fixed or take this medicine. The doctors don't know what's wrong with you. So the first half of Synecdoche in New York is a lot about this. Um, you know, he wakes up with these kind of like boils on him or he's just feeling, you know, actually I think he's describing his stool. There's yeah, a lot of poop like green. in Synecdoche in yeah. New York. No, yes, his, his daughter's like, poop green. is green. And then later in the movie, it's green. His daughter's poop is green. It's like bright green too. It's very strange. He has like blood in his stool. And then later his, his stool is described as gray, which I'm like, Jesus Christ, what's going on? But so Caden ends up going from doctor to doctor. And this is all kind of happening as uh, he'll sit in his house and he'll be watching advertisements for medicines that are like, uh, if you're going to die of heart disease, you better take this now because you're going to die of heart disease. And there's just so much this oppressive feeling about like when you're going to die. And when you when you start suffering from something that can't be described by doctors, you get this deeper sense and um, kind of compounded with this weird not uh, near-death experience, near-death experience. I've just been thinking a lot about like what I'm accomplishing on a day-to-day -day basis and how I could pretty much keel over at any point. And that seems really dreadful and, and, and overly anxious. Um, but I watch a movie like Synecdoche in New York and I think about, you know, what he goes through over this arc trying to do the greatest thing ever, uh, feeling the pressure to be really creative. Uh, I don't know what you guys think about the ending of this film, what Caden walks away with, if he's accomplished something or if he's wasted his life trying to accomplish something and feeling the dread of death, the oncoming, the inevitable. Um, but I walk away from the film feeling like I, I have a, I'm, I've confronted an issue 
because you can't figure out what's coming after. You can't, you will die eventually. So how do you live life without overthinking death? And I think Kaufman gets something right about that topic in this movie, about letting it all go somehow. But I don't know. Is this as depressing as my girlfriend feels? I, I think that letting it all go, I, I have, a, I feel like it's about a lot of things besides death, and I don't, I don't think you'd argue with that, but I thought about a lot of things other than death in it. But the idea of letting it all go, I think is really well embodied by Samantha Morton's character, who has the house on fire. And yes. that she buys the house because she always wanted to live in it, and the house the, the house is on fire from the very beginning. And she sees the fire, and everyone acknowledges the fire, and no one seems that concerned about it because, you know, it's just burning, it's doing fine. And then in the end, she dies of smoke <laughs> inhalation. Which That's everyone... one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie, where she's like, I should talk about the house, and she's like, I like the house, I do, but I'm also really concerned about, about dying, dying in the, the fire. fire. But, like, not that concerned. Yeah, and then the real estate agent's like, no, but look yeah. at the counter. But, like, she's, she's not so that concerned. Like, she recognizes it, but she's not that worried about it. And that seems like a really elegant visual well, representation of what yeah. this movie is saying about death, where it's like, it's coming. You yeah. know, it's going to be there Critics lingering. There's not a lot you too. can do about it. So, you know, live in the yeah. house. Well, I, I, think I, think like, it, uh, I think it goes th- deeper than that, because I think the real estate agent says something like, burning to death is, you know, horrible or something like that. Because she buys the house because she didn't, you know, things aren't going the way with Caden that she thought. So she's, you know, moving to a house alone that she said she wasn't planning on. And her future husband slash baby daddy is living in the basement. So she buys her entire future slash all the important decisions in her life in that one scene, and but just seems to be okay going going through it. But yeah, I also think the real estate agent's line is a big decision how one chooses that's, to die. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's something you know, you know. I've always uh, I fall into the most uh, typical film critic cliche in the world, um, even though a number of the best filmmakers have, have spawned from this cliche, which is that I. Uh, not a secret, want to be a filmmaker. I've gone to school, still in school for being a filmmaker and always saw myself as somebody who would be a filmmaker. And here I am working as a critic. And that's a whole other story that's not part of Patches' segment. But I find myself, uh, and this goes back to pretty much all of our segments, a little bit more comfortable with where I am all the time. Maybe not financially, but what I've accomplished, what I have, uh, what the scope of my life is. And what's so interesting about Caden Cotard is that he does, I think, the inverse of the natural progression which is that he expands the scope of what he feels like he needs to accomplish and what his presence on earth means and all these things all the time until it pretty much like the end of akira or something swallows him whole and i think i think the movie and maybe patches can pick up this thread and see if he relates to it is sort of birthed from the reaction between those two impulses the the impulse of your world getting smaller and the impulse uh, you know of your world still needing to be so much bigger before you can say that you've done anything with yourself. Yeah, I, you know, I was really struck rewatching this movie by the speech that the minister gives uh, late in the film. And I didn't know how you guys reacted to something like that. Um, actually, the minister character is played by the fellow who passed yeah. away. Recently, yeah, from who was on, Silicon Valley. Uh, Silicon oh. Valley. Yeah, and he gives a really amazing monologue. Um To condense it is is not doing it much justice, but he says something like, most of your time is spent being dead or not yet born, but while alive, you want in vain wasting years for a phone call or a letter or a look from someone or something to make it all right. Um, And I I mean, that's basically what Caden is is suffering throughout this. He's trying to be so self-reflexive and getting people to play his parts and to understand his own life that he 
isn't really living it. And I often think about, you know, religion kind of failed me. There were no answers there for me about like what comes next or like how to live peacefully with the idea of death. Um, but to, you know, to, to try and even grapple with what your life means or what it should be or, or having this arc for your life, as we may talk about with the Raiders. Um, it's, it's all seems very fruitless uh, and, and somehow living in the moment is much more satisfying. It's kind of like, uh, like boyhood. You know, it's uh, it's always right now, you know, it's always right now. But it... but isn't that the achievement? I mean, a lot of people go after boyhood for being about uh, nothing, I suppose. But it's nothingness is kind of the joy. It seems these people have learned how to live. In yeah, boyhood moment. seems like exactly um, what Caden's trying to accomplish, where you get this authenticity of yeah. what lived experience is like, especially, you know, if boyhood was about his family or something like that. That piece, like that piece would never sucks. come as easily or at all. For Charlie Kaufman. As no, no, for absolutely not. Well, and I think, I mean, I don't know that Synecdoche, New York taught me a lot about myself and like addressing like life's work and what you do for yourself, but I thought it was so powerful, like a look into Charlie Kaufman and what it's like to be someone who's trying to put your life into art and trying to kind of twist it around and seeing it thrown back up at you in the face of these actresses who are unsatisfied with it and, you know, actors who are playing you and how frustrating and weird and kind of mind-boggling that must become to the point that you feel like you're building an entire city inside an armory because you had this one idea. It's, It felt like a much better look into the life of a writer than almost anything else that I've seen. And and I, did, and I didn't get that I at know. all. I, I don't, it, and I feel really glad. It doesn't seem that narrow. I don't know that it's I narrow. I like anyone can really put themselves in that. I often, you know, something I really picked up on this viewing that I did not, I mean, I probably was so befuddled by this movie the first time I saw it back in the day that a lot didn't register with me until, like, until except for the big, broad themes and, and visuals. But I love, like, the military aspect of this. That, that the world kind is of, falling apart. This kind of post-apocalypse <laughs> movie that he's so entrenched in the play that whenever he goes outside, it's like all these homeless people are now about and tanks are driving around. It's it's insane, and but I, I feel that way right now, just about everything that's happening in the world, and how do you reckon with like big picture, small picture, and there's just so many things going on in life, and you don't want to be just obsessed with yourself or your timeline, uh, and this balancing act. It, what Kaufman's chewing on here doesn't seem just to be the creative uh, narrative. It doesn't seem to be the creative arc, uh, but for everyone who's kind of a peg in the world and and trying to do something with their life without trying to do something amazing. Huh. I think it's life. the there isn't there a line from Ty and Weiss at the end that it's all the same for everybody. Mhm. Everyone Just everybody's has... sort of Yeah, everyone get everyone gets to the end and feels exactly the same way that they're just like, well that's all it was. Like that's I think that's what I think that's just what she's saying. Sorry. There's a long she has a long good monologue before she yeah. tells him to die that it's great. Yeah, that is really good. I think. Yeah, but life's better when Diane Weist is the one telling you to die. That is so. That's true. why in treatment was fantastic. <laughs> yes. I think that. Wait, and Hannibal, right? No, no, no wait, no. that was yeah, Terry. Different Jones. one. Sorry. Interchangeable. Um, I think the biggest thing that like I did take out of it that didn't feel specific to Charlie Kaufman or the creative process is the notion of trying to cling to something that's gone and trying to recreate it and trying to work your way around it. And I mean, this is something you know we were talking about with. with Neighbors at the beginning of the show, like the idea of something that's beyond you and that you want to get back in some way. And I think a lot of people do try to do that through art and or through talking about it or through, you know, getting caught up in this cycle of nostalgia. And the way that he tries to, you know, get back in touch with his daughter or tries to recreate the scenes in his life and 
you know, make them better or make them more interesting. Like that, I think, is a really human impulse, regardless of whether or not you're trying to turn that compulsion into art. Yeah, I I keep gravitating towards the the end of the minister's speech too, which is um, you know he go he goes on and on about uh, something to make you feel connected, something to make you feel whole, blah blah blah, and you're and you're searching for this, um, and he ends by saying that no one wants to hear about your misery because they have their own, and then you just say fuck everybody, <laughs> uh, and that's the way to live, and maybe maybe I don't I don't know if this movie is depressing. Maybe that's what I'm really coming down to because before I watched it someone said like do you think of your life as something so depressing as as just watching the horizon come towards you uh, that you see the end of your life and that's all you could picture um, if you can really just say fuck everybody is that uh, egotistical self-centered or is that the proper way to live to, to start with yourself um, and just be able to cut off all this everything in the world that seems to be suggesting death there's just so much about like i i'm watching gilmore girls right now uh mostly because of david yeah. <laughs> and um you know the one the dad just retired uh and he can't retire he had to come back to work because he was he just didn't know what to do himself with retirement and i think about something like retirement uh you know what are you what are you saying when you retire are you saying i'm done working like i'm just like going towards death or something uh there's just so many standards in living uh that that imply your your finite existence and that's what i really got hung up with on this movie too just all the advertisements for uh, medical treatments or medicine and all of this and and the kind of like homophonic diseases that he has psychosis uh, i believe he suffers from <laughs> psychosis which is not psychosis and that i was like that is that was my experience over the summer going to all these different doctors not understanding what they were saying at all you know the one doctor played by josh pice in the film is really funny um he's just so cold so awful uh, and Philip Seymour Hoffman goes, you know, what, what do I need? Like, what what's wrong with me? Could it be this? And he's like, could be. <laughs> and he's like, well, what do I need to do? And he's like, well, you got to go see this specialist. Why? Well, for a look-see. A look-see. <laughs> That's like the worst doctor term. And I don't know. There's just so much. The, the way that this world operates uh, clues you in to your finished so, existence all Patches, the time. I don't you, know how to cut it uh, all. Did you ever feel better? I, I am feeling better. Yeah, they determined that I had a, a, just a, a vitamin deficiency. So now I'm just taking straight up vitamins. I had so many tests and so many scans. And it was and scurvy just all think, along. <laughs> yeah, it's basically just I needed more <laughs> vitamins. I've been with for every meal. For almost 10 years. And right, I know. Still, I've, we've been, uh, I've been, I've been here on the journey. Yeah, it's just, it, but that's like a crazy feeling. Like how do you – move past it and i guess the way to move past it is just keep on living to to yeah to keep um, on living so. I have, a lot of pills I have, a lot of pills i'm very I have optimistic one other downer thought that i wondered if it occurred to, i wondered oh, if it occurred to you guys you need a good downer i mean thought did you think about the fact that we're not going to see philip seymour hoffman himself get old like watching that happen in this movie and thinking about that uh, or, that yeah. extension of a life that was cut short like it was it was really hard not to think about that what i think it might be the first one of his older movies i've watched since he died like it was that one was tough yeah, he, I mean, Caden is consuming himself throughout this yeah. movie and and indulging in some ways in a very destructive behavior at times. And it's hard to separate uh, everything that's happened to Philip Seymour Hoffman this year from that. But I think maybe it's a testament to Charlie Kaufman's writing that eventually I, I, that 
I lost that thought. And this world is very well constructed and Caden feels vibrant and, and very dimensionalized yes. in, in this world. And I, I didn't, I detached myself from that. I think it just made the time, realness of the whole idea up. of like what life is and what you can make of it and what your brief time is kind of, it, it popped back for me over and over again throughout the movie. Synecdoche, New York, uh, people people kind of ripped this movie a new one when it came out, which I really think is interesting. And I probably had some mixed thoughts too, but I think it's quite a masterpiece. I think it's something else. Um, it For it to be like written off as arty-farty philosophical nonsense, I think is disappointing. If for, for this moment in my life, contemplating life, contemplating death, uh, this is the perfect movie for me. I really enjoyed it again. This song is called I Am Sad, So Very, Very Sad. So sad! Thank you. This next one's called We Hate You, Please Die. That does it for this very special quarter quell edition of Fighting in the War Room. We'll be we'll not be back on Friday with a review. Uh, it's a quarter quell. It's a special week. We're just going to take this one off. There's l- Also, the movies this week Woof, that come out are Who awful. knows what Pyramid is? Raise your hand. I, I haven't even seen the ad. Apparently, it's a found footage movie geometric about Egyptian shape, archaeology. But <laughs> it's about we, geometry we'll class. Say, if you're in New York or possibly L.A., uh, go see Still Alice. We'll probably talk about it in early January when Sony Pictures Classics is beginning to acknowledge its existence for Julianne Moore's Oscar. Yeah, so we'll get there. Uh, and also, there's no Thought Bubble this week. It's a slow week in uh, fighting in the War Room headquarters. Enjoy your, vac- <laughs> enjoy your vacation, Joanna. But uh, Dave, Thought Bubble will be back next week. Right. Yes, ma'am. All right, as will uh, Fighting in the War Room. So in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write all over the internet uh, on, and put everything on mattpatches.com. And I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And if you have thoughts about this episode, questions, comments, anything, you can leave them on our website, fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor for Time Out New York. I'm also the editor at Large of Little White Lies magazine, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner and uh, keep an eye out for um, the self-promotion begins or continues here with, uh, for my uh, annual top 25 films of the year video countdown, which will be out there this week. Uh, and you can find all of us together sharing that video and other things <laughs> on, uh, on our Facebook at Fighting in the World. But mostly the video. Mostly the video. Mostly what's being shared. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. Writing about Star Wars and superhero movie news at latino-review.com and mega-franchising at Forbes.com and on a series of podcasts, but not this week, at fightinginthewarroom.com and republicsaydispatch.com. And I am Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair's Hollywood without Joanna Robinson this week, sadly, but most weeks she's there too. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And you can find all of us on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R. There is no lightning round question this week, so just talk to us about whatever else is on your mind. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Stays, I'll wait for him in
pieces of glass Stays. I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of life. I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of life. If he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of life. If he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of life.